Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. How do you tell the story of climate change? We talk about catastrophic moments, rapid transformation, but even a few years is a lot of days, a lot of hours. Times when you're doing something else or many things. Daniel Gumbiner's new novel, Fire in the Canyon, is a book about a gold country town on the front lines of this war we are waging on ourselves. But it's a quiet, meditative book. The central character is an old hippie, a pot grower, a grape tender. There's action and drama, but it's not a collage of IPCC report scenarios. It's a real and human story about what happens when a family's own unspectacular life becomes part of the global drama of global warming. Governor joins us next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and welcome to a pledge drive-free few months here at the station. Really, thank you all so much for the overwhelming support that you provided over the last couple of weeks. Like, really, thank you. It made a big difference. We're joined this morning by Daniel Gumbiner, author of the National Book Award-nominated novel, The Boat Builder, and editor of The Believer. His new book is Fire in the Canyon, a rich and textured novel that I think... I would call a father and son novel first and climate fiction second. Though it's set in the gold country, this book is laced with Bay Area, beyond the rapture of natural wine. Let me just give you one example. There's a new bar in town in this book, and it has a taxidermied polar bear in it. And the description is drawn from a real-life bar's taxidermied polar bear. Do you know where? Yes, it is the famed polar bear at the Warehouse Cafe in Port Costa. What I'm trying to say is, Climate books can feel ponderous. They can feel like barely disguised science reports. Daniel Gumbiner's novel, however, is not like that. The characters are beautifully realized, and they're living in our world, which is warming, and in Northern California, which must learn how to cope with the fires in the canyons. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Really glad to be here. So let's start a little bit with the economics of small farming out in gold country, or even in a place like Sonoma. I mean, what's it? actually like to try and eke out a living for your family in a 
place like the novel is set in? Well, I think it is challenging these days. And I think that's one of when the book begins, uh, one of the main characters, Ben, uh, and his wife, Ada, who is a novelist. They live in the Sierra foothills. And, and they're in a bit of a precarious situation financially um, just due to, to those reasons. Um, ben is a grape farmer, uh, used to grow cannabis, but has turned to wine grapes. And um, they, they are in a vulnerable state as the uh, book begins. Yeah, I think when people see these like beautiful areas and they see these like little rustic farmhouses, they think like, well, that land would be really expensive, so therefore you must be able to make a lot of money on it. But that's not really how it works. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Ben. Uh, we've been talking about him on the team as like really the uber northern California man. You know, raised in Oakland, as you said. You know, former pot grower, current vineyard tender. Um, not a fancy kind. What led you to? cast Ben here as the protagonist of the story you want to tell? Well, I think I just, you know, honestly, I started writing the book and I just started writing him moving around uh, his farm. And that was kind of where it all began. And I, and I started thinking about who he was. And, you know, he was this person who has all these varied interests. And he's, he's an adventurous character in a way and uh, experimental. And this is one of his great strengths, and also maybe some would argue one of his flaws, uh, that you know he uh, gets a little too absorbed in what he's doing, uh, the the many different farm projects he's managing, yeah. uh, maybe loses track of other things at times. But um, I just sort of you know he he kind of came to me fairly fully realized as he was moving around his farm. You're like that guy would like a backgammon history podcast, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, which he does in the book. Uh, Ben's son, uh, Yoel, works in, quote, TV development, which is fine, I guess, according to everyone. Um, but he has this kind of complex relationship uh, with his father. You know, when we first meet him, as he's kind of returning home with his tail between his legs. Yeah, exactly. Yoel comes back to the family farm at the beginning of the book. And, you know, we, we see them in these little skirmishes that they're having about uh, dumb stuff. I think probably a lot of people can... Uh, imagine that sort of family dynamic, you know, where there are little fights here and there, and the fights themselves aren't really that important. But the roots you know? go all the way down. Exactly. <laughs> There's sort of a deeper emotional substrata there that is actually driving the the um, those conflicts. Yeah. Um, we need to talk about now the fire that the novel begins with. Um, it's really kind of the catalyst that moves the plot into to action here. Um, and, it, and it feels like Wildfire becomes something that these characters really can't get away from, which I think for different people at different times over the last decade, I think that's become reality for a lot of people. Has that been your reality? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously some people are affected by Wildfire more than others, but I think all of us here in California have have felt the effects of it, especially during certain months of the year. And um, so that was something I, I wanted to explore, you know, the idea of um, how, what happens before a fire, what happens after a fire. You know, these, these events are very heavily covered uh, when they're transpiring. Uh, but I felt it was more the province of a novel to explore the periods before and after and, mm. and how people are dealing with the um, emotional aspects of living in a place that is threatened in that way. Yeah. I mean, one thing I found, and maybe the word here is, is healing, to see kind of written into a book is the way that just waiting to see if there's going to be a fire at a time when there's like fire weather, which we've now come to kind of 
feel and understand particular wind patterns and a kind of heat and a dryness, we all kind of are like, Ugh, this is no longer a nice day. This is fire weather. Um, just to see that written down, how exhausting that can be in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, as someone who grew up in the Bay Area, you know, that was such a stark transformation for me in, in recent years, you know, to, to think about those times of year in different ways. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we all experience and it was something that I wanted to, to capture the precarity of that. Yeah. Um, we're talking with Daniel Gumbiner about his new book comes out tomorrow, fire in the Canyon, which explores life after a wildfire in a small gold country town. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, do you live up in wine country, down in Santa Cruz, and gold country? Have you been impacted by wildfire? What are your memories of that? And how has that changed your life today versus before the fire? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. It's forum at kqed.org. You can find us, you know, Twitter, Instagram, threads. Go to the Discord or KQED forum. We have a little uh, bit for you to read that is kind of about that fire dread. Okay. There was only so much they could take. They talked to each other of the fatigue, of the fear. To have this thing hanging over you, it crushed the spirit. Some took practical actions. They joined volunteer firefighting groups, installed sprinkler systems on their roofs. Others covered their ears decided that it wasn't really that big of an issue, that the media was blowing it out of proportion. But most of them did take it seriously. Most of them woke in the morning and looked at the horizon and looked at the calendar and prayed. On the best of days during the fire season, it was often on their minds. But when there were outages, when they knew a red flag warning was posted, it was particularly bad. You just hoped no one did anything stupid. You hope there was no one out there starting a campfire, no one driving through town from out of state with no idea where they were, throwing a cigarette out their window. In the evenings, they thought twice about having a second drink or putting themselves in any kind of vulnerable situation. You didn't want to be the person who was drunk or on a sleeping pill when the evacuation orders came through. Those were the people who got stuck in their houses. They'd read about those people. That's Daniel Gumbiner reading from his new book, Fire in the Canyon, which comes out tomorrow. You know, have you lived through through one of those nights, you know, where the wind is just blowing, kind of like picking up the house? They lived through a few of these um, in the book. Um, tell us that and tell us about it if you have. Yeah, no, I've, I've never lived through an evacuation like they lived through uh, in this book. Um, but, you know, I a, a lot of the, you know, capturing that came from my own research, talking to people, mm. friends and family who had more uh, direct experience with that kind of thing. Um, and so that was really how I, a, a lot of the way I constructed various scenes in the book was was trying to, you know, understand what some of those situations that I maybe hadn't experienced personally mm. would feel like, you know, um, yeah. you're evacuating, you're, you're fleeing out to the coast, you think your house might be gone. You know, I think everyone can relate to the idea of possibly losing something completely. And we've all had that experience in our life when, when you know, we've lost something and there, there was really no getting it back and, and the fear of that and, and the grief involved in that. So I think in, in some of those passages, that's sort of what I was, was looking to channel. 
Yeah, I mean, our, our family was once staying at a house in Southern California when kind of the, a, a wind blew up like that. And it was kind of like, you know, at the end of a long road and the wind was just like blowing, just howling through the night. And it's just one of those things where you kind of felt like, as happens in the book, I shouldn't be asleep. <laughs> like, I need to, like, be alert and awake in case something happens. Of know? course, yeah. And that yeah. takes a toll on a person, you know, yeah. that type of vigilance. Yeah. Um, another experience that's really made me, made me think of is some friends had a wildfire burn through their place up near Lake Berryessa. And we went to visit like a year or two later. And what really struck me or what was kind of weird to me was that the fire didn't like move like a wall, right? It had a more complex structure. Like it burned in some places, but not in others. And some things were totally untouched and other things were just completely gone. Um, how did you uh, kind of come to, to think about the way a wildfire moved like that. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And and I think some of those elements are um, unpredictable these days too, which is part of what uh, has has complicated everything so much, you know. And this is something that is talked about in the book, but you know, fires are moving in ways that are different than they used to. They burn hotter, they burn at higher elevations. Um, and so I think every year uh, people are sort of trying to figure out exactly what they can expect, you know, or what, wh- how will their expectations be broken? And uh, that's what makes it particularly uh, complicated to deal with these situations. Right. Like the, you know, titular fire in the canyon, fire hasn't come into that part of the canyon, right? In years past, it would stay on the, the other side of this ridge. Exactly. Yeah. That's something that they know about their landscape, but yeah. that's kind of shifting in the book. Yeah. And just so people uh, kind of know as we go into the first break here, right, this is set in kind of an imaginary gold country, right? It's not It's not like you're not going to, if you're listening out there, you're going to be like, wait, which town is this in? It's, a, it's not that. It's a town of the mind. Exactly. It's a fictional town. Yeah. yeah. If there was a town that you would say it was closest to, <laughs> like what town, like what would you say? I would say it's, it's an amalgam of a few different uh-huh. towns in the foothills. Uh, you know, we, we used to spend some time in the foothills as kids. We had family friends who lived up there. And so it was always a special place to me. Always had a kind of mythical quality. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of a passed over place in the sense that, you know, people uh, go through on the way to Tahoe. But to me, it was always very special. Uh, and I, I always had the idea I wanted to set a book there at some point. Yeah. Uh, Martine, one of our listeners, uh, writes, really interested in this conversation. I read The Boat Builder, your previous book, several years ago, which is set in a strangely off-kilter version of a West Marin town I'm very familiar with, and his working of mood and place and fascinating, complicated characters was very cool. Um, We're talking to novelist Daniel Gumbiner about his new book, Fire in the Canyon. He's also editor of The Believer and author, as you heard, of the the book, The Boat Builder. I'd love to hear from you. I mean, what are your memories of wildfire? Give us a call, 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking to novelist Daniel Gumbiner about his new book, Fire in the Canyon. Comes out tomorrow. Explores life in the new reality, the new normal of wildfires up in the gold country. He's an editor at The Believer and also the author of the National Book Award nominee, The Boat Builder. Um, we'd love to uh, hear from you. Do you live up in gold country, maybe down in Santa Cruz, uh, up in Sonoma? Been impacted by wildfire How's that experience changed how you live today versus before the fire? You can call 866-733-6786 or forum uh, kqed.org. Find us on all the different uh, social platforms. Um, I want to talk a a little bit about the other action of the book, which is this sort of emerging understanding of and love for natural wine for the characters who are in in the book. Ben's son, named Yoel, has a friend named Hallie who's getting into natural wine. And I wonder if you've had a kind of revelation yourself about that kind of wine or like why that kind of um, struck you as a good sort of novelistic figure. Yeah, that um, that sort of just worked its way into the book. And I found that, you know, I was interested in wine. um, But, you know, as it made its way into the book, I found I was really curious about it and wanted to know more about. And I think whenever I sort of encounter a curiosity like that in my writing, I just try and follow it and hang on to it because I I find that, you know, if I'm curious in the exploration, the writing of it, then the reader kind of comes along with that curiosity. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think you can tell sometimes when maybe the writer isn't quite as interested or curious about something shows up on the page. Right. So I try and just sort of follow those threads. And that, that was kind of how that emerged. Yeah. When the writer's getting from like, yeah, point A to point B in an outline, you can kind of feel that, feel that writing. Exactly. Um, it's also partially though, right? I mean, natural wine, at least to me, has always felt like um, it has this kind of plant power. You know, it has this... Um, there's a kind of magic to it that feels very un-Napa cab, you know? I think people, and feels very, as the characters sort of show in this book, it's kind of unfussy in a different way from, I think, the way that people might be thinking about a wine in Northern California. Absolutely, yeah. And there's something, you know, um, sort of ancient and, and elemental about that process that's really uh, compelling. And And I sort of, I got really interested in that and, you know, just started building it into the book more and more. Uh, and, you know, like I said, it was kind of a curiosity. Um, and I think sometimes with that, with those elements in a book, uh, you know, you get really interested in it. And then at a certain point, you have to kind of pull back and ask yourself, <laughs> how much of this is important for the reader? Uh, my Or my, somebody tells you you have to do that at least. <laughs> exactly. My, my partner, Claire, is a, is a wonderful editor. And she at one point, you know, circled a passage and was like, uh, how much information do we need about carbonic <laughs> maceration? <laughs> See, I was thinking, I wish there had been more about carbonic maceration. That was my thought <laughs> in, uh, in that passage. Um, Can no, you, you just have an editor who would who would just write condense by half. I'd be like, <laughs> Ouch, you know. Um, um, 
You know, I mean, the other thing that's really interesting about wine insofar as it relates to climate change, um, I have a friend who runs uh, a wine shop um, in in Berkeley, and I was really struck by him talking about how these legendary wine areas, they're not really what they were before. Like, actually, literally, their exact climate conditions that made, you know, these parts of Napa exactly what they were in the winemaking world because of climate change, they'll never have that precise arrangement of conditions maybe ever again because they're literally like kind of have moved on the map in some sense. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, I think there's all sorts of transformations, whether it's, you know, dealing with smoke related conditions or the shifting, uh, you know, climate on a season by season basis that winemakers are faced with these days yeah. and they know it too like all the winemakers you don't find climate change deniers among the winemakers you no, know definitely they all know not. no yeah. yeah they're aware of the conditions yeah um you mentioned these grapes that are um subjected to uh to wildfire smoke i mean that actually they basically can't sell their grapes right which as we've been talking about these are not like fancy farmers these are people who like are on the edge of losing their property or on the edge of foreclosure and were you able to talk with anybody who's actually like found themselves in that situation of just like no one will buy the grapes because they've gotten this chemical test that says, nope, at some point these grapes will ruin the wine? Yeah, yeah. I spoke with a lot of people who that happened to, especially in 2020. That was a big problem in 2020 with that massive uh, wildfire year. Um, but it's a really challenging situation. I mean, if you have crop insurance, you can you know get some of your money back, but not especially a small farmer like Ben in the book, Mm -hmm. he might not have crop insurance. And so uh, he's more vulnerable. Yeah. Let's bring in a caller. Let's go to um, Jasmine in Glen Ellen, Sonoma. Welcome, Jasmine. Hi, thank you. Hi, I was listening to your show. Your book sounds like it's going to be fabulous. I can hardly wait to get it on Audible. (laughs) (laughs) Tomorrow, tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I was just calling because I lived through the, um, our experience then lived through the Tubbs fire um, in this area. And um, I think the next fire about a year later was the lightning complex fire. Yeah. And I, um, I, I'm a renter. um, But like I told the other lady, it's, uh, you know, that the fears and the losses and the fear of loss is still Mm. the same, you know, whether you rent or own. I mean, everything that you own is in your home. And, you know, um, I was telling her that the night we had to evacuate, um, you know, it's like all of a sudden you're asleep and then all of a sudden it's like you got to leave. There's a fire and went outside, grabbed some stuff. This was when they first started. So we hadn't I hadn't prepared any kind of to go back. I didn't even really even think about fire. Tell you the truth, right? And um, yeah, and so um, I was out in the yard. My neighbors were all out. We're like, okay, you know, how, where are you going to go? Which road are you going to take to get out of here? And you could actually feel the heat from the fire, which was just a few miles away. It just so happened that where I live was right in the middle of Kenwood and the town of Glen Ellen. So that this particular area on Warm Springs Road didn't burn and mm. hasn't burned in quite some time. So that's another thing um, during this time of year, especially October, um, there's always that thought, okay, this area hasn't burned yet. Yep. When's it going to burn? You know, right. are we going to be next? Man. <laughs> yeah, Jasmine, I mean, that so, I, I think that, that exact feeling that you're describing, that thing where you're like, Things that should be good. Oh, it hasn't burned. 
then become bad. Things that should be good. Oh, it's a beautiful October day. This is like the whole reason to live in Northern California is these patches of weather. They become bad, you know? And there's these inversions of like what's, what we're supposed to love about this place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Dan, did you want to respond to, to any of the other things that Jasmine was talking about? You know, I was thinking about the to-go bag. The, you know, like that go bag thing is, you know, 10 years ago, how many people had a go bag? Or if they did, it would have been for an earthquake, you know? Yeah, well, I'm so sorry that that you went through those experiences. I mean, um, I and I think it's it's so it's increasingly common these days. I mean, so many folks who I talked to in in the course of researching this book had had similar experiences, and they were really impactful experiences. You know, there were there was one person who I was talking to who uh, was describing their experience uh, evacuating from santa rosa and you know and started crying in the course of the interview just kind of recounting the fear and you know their house was ultimately totally fine but just that moment of leaving and not knowing what was happening Mm -hmm. and the tension and stress of that was so much that even years later it was still impacting them yeah you know another uh listener writes in to say you know it's bad enough to live through the 2016 2017 2019 and 2020 wildfires evacuations of livestock respiratory distress panic personally providing park closure while the park was on fire the aftermath meant unexpected panic ptsd during the next fourth of july fireworks and since and continuing even now the every day of the burned viewscapes the rebuilding and even studying the recovery in nature these are constant reminders of the actual fires Many of my friends and I have become experts at following apps and camera programs, windy, fire alert, watch duty, flight re- radar, and feeling fire calmed by the recent rainy sprinkles. To help myself with the grief, I almost daily get out in nature and take joy from observing the way nature recovers. Wow. Sarah, thanks so much for sharing that experience. I mean, I think, you know, it's tough because that's another one of those inversions too, you know, where you're sort of like, the the sadness of seeing these places burned, the imagining that you might lose some place that you love, mm-hmm. you know, that maybe you have family memories embedded in. Yeah, and speaking to, you know, that question of PTSD too and what comes after, that's something that definitely the characters in the book are wrestling with. You know, this fire happens and then it sends them all in different directions and in, in ways that are kind of unpredictable. Yeah. It's also, it feels very sad to me that, um, and I think this is something that you, you try to get to in the book, I don't want to give away everything, but that oftentimes the first responses are kind of individualistic, like I'll get a go bag ready, <laughs> I'll get a different kind of insurance, I'll like do, you know, X, Y, and Z. But of course, like that's, that doesn't solve any of the kind of core problems that are changing the situation. Yeah, yeah, there is this sort of larger sort of political question surrounding all of this too, right? And uh, that um, I think is something that a lot of people come out on the other side of having an experience with fire um, being being transformed in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's something that transpires in the book too. I mean, it was it was a tricky thing to to try to figure out how to incorporate the political in the book because you know sometimes the the political can kind of dwarf the other stories that are occurring. But, you know, what I ultimately realized was that, you know, these characters through their lived concerns would, as you say, sort of have questions afterward about this, the bigger picture. Um, and that was sort of a natural way to to start to uh, weave that into the book. Yeah. 
Um, you know, one listener writes, one nice thing about the fires is that it has brought us closer to neighbors. On the other hand, I do look all the time to see if my neighbors have created defensible space or have the kinds of trees that will burst into flames. Junipers are terrible, and so are our bay laurels. I mean, how, I guess, you know, this does happen in the book, right? Um, there's a beautiful relationship between uh, Wick, and uh, who's another guy in town, and, and Ben. Um, do you think those relationships are the basis of the answer to the political question? Or is that kind of too small scale? These, you know, the guy who come over and, and help you clean up the burned you know, barn. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's definitely something I heard a lot. Um, and you know, that was really actually sort of the origin point for the book in a lot of ways was I, I was having dinner with my friend, uh, in Sonoma who lost all of his barns in a fire up there. And, you know, he started telling me about the way in which the fire had transformed all of his relationships with his neighbors. Um, and, you know, he, he described going to this laundromat and and meeting this guy who was obviously far too wealthy to be at a laundromat, but you know he he had to be there and he was there and the two of them started talking and his neighbors from up the hill came down and introduced themselves to check on him and that's still a, you know a relationship he has mm-hmm. and so I I thought that was a really interesting idea you know about how these types of fires would would shift sort of the social fabric of a community and and that was really where I started thinking about the book and then, you know, of course it changed it in a thousand ways, but um, that was a big part of uh, how I thought about the the situation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, another uh, listener writes in to say, you know, our neighbor's grapes were a total loss due to smoke taint, as it's called, uh, in 2020. They had crop insurance, but have had trouble getting it since then, now that insurers are are savvy to the problem. And I think we've seen this, you know, uh, up and down the state in different ways that the old solutions, which is just like, oh, well, just get the right kind of insurance, even those are kind of coming off the table, right? Yeah, this is this is a huge problem, you know, the, getting insurance these days and it's leaving a lot of people, you know, I was in uh, the foothills a few weeks ago visiting a friend and, and met some folks who had lived through the Calder fire and they were talking about the, the skyrocketing cost of insurance. A lot of them were opting to go without insurance uh, because it was so expensive. And so um, that obviously puts you in, in a much more precarious situation, but some folks don't have the option with the costs. Yeah. yeah. We're talking to the novelist Daniel Gumbiner about his new book, Fire in the Canyon, which explores life in a small gold country town after a wildfire. He's also uh, an editor at The Believer and also the author uh, of the National Book Award nominee, The Boat Builder, which is set in West Marin. Um, We'd love to hear from you. I mean, do you live up in wine country or in gold country or down in Santa Cruz, a place that's been affected by a wildfire? What are your memories and how has that experience changed how you live today versus before the fire. Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Maybe you want to talk about what possessions you would take with you if you were forced to uh, flee from a fire. I mean, do you already have that bag packed? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786, or you can email forum at kqed.org or find us on all the various uh, social platforms. You know, um, one listener writes in to ask about your background. Is Daniel from the Bay Area? Did he grow up here? He writes so believably about this region. It's nice to have a local writer like him in our midst. Curious how you survive as a novelist in this area and what tips you could share for aspiring writers. 
Yes, I did grow up in the area. Um, and thank you for that that note. Um, uh, well, in terms of uh, tips for aspiring writers, you know, I think, you know, I would say find a story, especially if you're working on on your first uh, book or story. You know, find something that that you are uniquely suited to tell. Mm. And you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be autobiographical, but just something that that you have. Um, special insight into and that kind of only you would be able to tell in the way you would tell it. That I think is always compelling and interesting to uh, a reader. Does that mean you were really deeply familiar with West Marin? Was that kind of like the... Well, I did. Yeah, I did grow up in Marin. So, you know, I always had a connection to to that area. That's interesting. Um, we've got uh, other stories kind of coming in of people who've had experiences um, with wildfires um, here's, here's another one about kind of living with the fear of it. Uh, we have a place in Sonoma and the Tubbs fire came close to it. That week was so exhausting as we frantically looked at the fire maps. That time, I think we thought that was going to be a one time only weird, but horrible disaster. We had no idea that this would become a way of life. I no longer think of buying nice things for the house because I assume we will lose it to fire. I mean, how have you thought about the kind of I guess kind of the rebuilding question, you know, like at a, at a certain point, you know, in this book, they now, they, they come to know uh, through various means that fire is just going to be a part of these people's lives. And even beyond the, the characters in the book, like, should they be rebuilding with places that we know are so, so fire prone? Yeah. I mean, I think this is part of the emotional tension that is is transpiring. You know, I, I think, uh, folks uh, don't know, and it's very hard to plan for a future when when you're dealing with something like that, and that is part of the emotional costs of of climate change. That you know we see a lot of description of you know the actual you know destruction that's wrought by these fires. But you know what about the experience of thinking about your life and your worldview? I I was talking to someone the other day who mentioned the idea that. Uh, all fiction today is climate fiction. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I thought that was really interesting because, you know, of course, how could it not be? How could this experience of living within an existential threat not shape how we think about our lives and how we plan and how we move through the world? Yeah. And so I think that's, you know, a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And you see, um, you know, one, one listener writes, because of my volunteer experience with CERT training and other preparedness organizations, I'm prepared for fire evacuation. Uh, having a go bag at the ready and a practice plan with your family is peace of mind. This new normal, in quotes, is here to stay. Plan with your family and business. Be ready. A uh, little you know, news you can use here um, as part of the, the novel. We're talking with uh, Daniel Gumbiner about his new book. It's called Fire in the Canyon, which explores life after a wildfire in a gold country town. It's an editor at The Believer and also wrote a celebrated book, The Boat Builder. Love to hear from you. We got more of your stories coming up. If you live in uh, wine country uh, or, you know, out in another fire-prone place, you can send that story into us at forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with the novelist Daniel Gumbiner about his new book, Fire in the Canyon, comes out tomorrow. Um, A lot of the stories, a lot of books about climate change have disasters that kind of tip them into this kind of dystopian realm, you know, and you there's I feel like there's a almost like in a lot of nonfiction books, there's kind of a covid coda. You see it in a lot of like fiction now too, where like suddenly like the last twenty pages are like set in a future with climate change. It's like the like people trying to deal with it in some way. Did you have to restrain yourself from going more dystopian? Yeah, you know, I think I felt pretty clear from the beginning that you know I wanted to write about the lived experience of climate change today. Um, I I felt I had read a lot of books that that took on that more futuristic dystopian lens to to the subject and and for the record I think there are a lot of amazing books of of that genre but with this I sort of felt like you know there was a different story here that I was observing transpiring all around me um, about you know how these issues are affecting people today and so I I sort of knew that was the focus I wanted to bring to the book yeah. Um, we have a comment from uh, listener Scott. Um, it's kind of, I'm going to tack a question on to the end of it. Scott writes, um, at the end of the day, isn't this about accepting that change is inevitable? We have this strange desire to cling to our comfortable past when really what we have is our future. And, you know, in this book, the main character, Ben, who we've been talking about, this kind of uh, hippie grape grower, former pot grower, he used to also be an antiques dealer. And it seems like there's this kind of theme of this book about both capturing and holding on to the past, but also, I mean, as Scott says, like, it's going to go. Like, it, you know, a lot of the antiques burn, you know. Um, what's your relationship to that kind of holding on to the past or, you know, holding up to, uh, holding on to, like, say, the West Marin you once knew? Yeah, I think that's a wise perspective. You know, I think we have to be open to change. And at the same time, like we do shape our own destiny in in a variety of ways. And so there, you know, there are things we can do uh, with within that realm of, uh, you know, how, how our future will go that can uh, that we can control. But yeah, it's, it's true. There are there are some aspects of the situation that we're, we might not be able to change. Yeah. I mean, in this in this town, they begin to do some organizing. Right. I mean, people don't just do the kind of neighborly stuff. They start to they start to do some political organizing. Um, tell us about how you thought about that. There's this group in there called the the San Andreans. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of Yoel the son becomes involved in this with this group, and um, you know, I think part of it is that uh, you know 
Yoel is is sort of a very sensitive person, and and he feels the the gravity of this situation very intensely. And so he's kind of the first one to sort of start to want to make a change in that way. And I think um, I'm I'm really interested in in the way in which sort of you know Yo- Yoel's sensitivity is in a way something that he's kind of considered as a flaw of his. Hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, it's been, and his his family has perceived it in that way at times too. His dad has certainly struggled with it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think often with our, you know, perceived flaws, if you follow the, the string far enough back, it's kind of connected to a strength. Um, and so in Yoel's case, it's that, you know, he is the first one to be attuned to uh, what's happening and, and to consider taking action becomes involved in this group. And so, um, that's that's something that I'm always interested in, the way in which sort of, you know, the things that we often think we might need to repress about ourselves mm-hmm. um, or our own perceived flaws are also uh, connected to our strengths. Mm. It's difficult, too, because it does feel to me like nearly, you know, very similar people that I know are affected very differently by climate change. Some are like racked with daily anxiety and other people are like, yeah. You know, it's like it's a it's a really interesting kind of tuning to the particular kind of frequencies of of what's happening with the climate. Yeah, exactly. And and how do you work with that? How do you work with your own particular relationship to it in a way that's helpful and productive? I mean, you can make a very good argument that there's reason to be to feel a tremendous amount of anxiety about it. But is feeling a tremendous amount of anxiety all the time helpful to you? Does it does it advance you know, how you want to be in the world. So these are sort of questions that uh, we have to wrestle with. What about you? I mean, do you have that kind of climate dread? For me, it it comes and goes. I mean, certainly working on this book. I mean, I I think a lot of working on on this book was a way of uh, allowing me to sort of sit with some of these questions and look at them, things that were maybe a little bit frightening to me. And I think, you know, we have a tendency sometimes with things that are frightening to, to look away, to shield our eyes and then of course you know they get bigger and more scary in the closet as as opposed to you know sort of just confronting them and so i think writing can be a way of working through those problems for yourself and kind of figuring out what you think and feel about something that is is challenging i have the the strangest thing that actually gives me some kind of sense of sucker which is just you know you look at urban infrastructure late 19th early 20th century and it's just cities are just like burning down like over and over. Like you just got Chicago just like burning down. And I was talking to the Stanford historian Richard White one time about like what got that problem fixed? Like what, what, how did this urban infrastructure get built? How did we get water systems and the kind of fire systems that would stop, you know, and building codes and all that. And he was kind of like, it was the conflagrations. It was, you know, it it was Mm. not just one, but like many times, bad things happening before people finally said like, well, you know, these bad things are going to keep happening unless we actually do something. And so it's not like I want those things to happen, but I think about him saying that all the time. Like it, that is part of the path, I think, that gets people to redo the calculus for how they want society to run. That's such a great point. Yeah. And, and people are becoming so much more savvy, especially in fire prone regions like the wine country in terms of understanding, you know, how to make uh, their property uh, resistant to fire and, uh, you know, how to plan for it. Totally. Um, on the, the score of kind of the political movement that kind of comes out of this, it's kind of like a direct action group. I'm not going to say everything about it, but they're a direct action group. And 
One of the things that I think I've struggled with when I've seen some of those actions, and I think maybe people have seen some of it, there's been an increasing number of kind of incidents of like direct action out, you know, sports stadiums or at museums or or whatever, or more directly um, around like fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, how how do you even write about that without having it feel out of scale to the size of the problem, right? Everybody knows it's going there's like just a few, if you're like 10 people, you can only do so much. And like, does that matter relative to this massive global phenomenon? Yes, I think that is the, you know, the great challenge of, of that kind of the political problem there. Um, and the, the scale is so massive uh, and it can be hard to figure out what is the best way in politically yeah. for to, to make an impact. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I, I don't really think the book is making an argument so much about it as it's kind of presenting, you know, uh, one way in which a character responds to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think then it, it's, you know, a way to consider like, well, how effective is this or um, mm-hmm. what what do I feel about that? Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, and that's something I actually I wanted to talk a little bit more about. Um, Laura tweets, um, my people are Hill uh, Nasinen. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Of El Dorado City, dead center gold country. Please keep in mind any discussion on fire should include the indigenous of those lands and how we've managed fire for thousands of years. Um, I do want you to talk about that. I also want to add an addendum, which is you know one reason we do have this wildfire problem is that you know the Forest Service and the other you know governmental authorities did prevent fires for so long that we kind of almost have like a backlog essentially a, a fire un, unlike when these lands were you know fire managed by by indigenous people um i mean one interesting thing is uh, the, do the characters in this book sort of have that knowledge inside of them you know um and how have you uh, how have you like perceived that relationship between you know folks like the the people in the book and um indigenous people in, in those areas yeah this this is a that's a really important point and uh, you know, and and it's true that you know native peoples did manage fire, and and not and fire is a natural part of this ecosystem, and it's not necessarily bad. You know, we're having these increasingly destructive wildfires that are exacerbated by climate change, but you know, fire itself is is a natural part of the landscape. It's really important for returning nutrients to the soil, um, and native peoples in in California understood that and and um, used fire uh, for a variety of different. Uh, purposes to to manage the landscape, mm-hmm. um, and that's you know, and as I mentioned in the book, part of the you know there is an awareness that that it would be uh, that you know prescribed burns are positive for the environment, and there are ways to to use that that native wisdom, and at the same time, you know, within the the uh, modern uh, reality of uh, land ownership and people not wanting burns and people not wanting. Uh, pollution in their area, it becomes challenging to to um, to uh, incorporate execute, some of that right? and yeah. execute that type of um, practice. And, and so that's one of the one of the challenges of what we're facing. We do we do know that that would be helpful, and it's difficult to get it done today. And you know the characters say this in in the book too. How do you tell good fire from bad fire? Yeah, you know, there's with climate change, we know that there can be different conditions from what would have been there previously when particular types of fires might have been a helpful thing. Um, yes. And I think, you know, in particular, I think people around here think about the speed that those fires have been moving relative to how 
maybe they experienced it in the past. Um, we have some uh, some stories here that I want to get to. Um, these are people who had you know different kinds of experiences. I'm going to kind of read a, a couple, like a little block of them here. Um, Susan writes. I was lucky I didn't lose my house on the east side of Santa Rosa near Highway 12. In 2017, I awoke in the early morning hearing voices out front. I went out completely confused when my friend Ellen came across from her house. We met in the middle of the street. I asked what was going on. She pointed up saying Sonoma County is on fire. I looked up and saw the early morning sky was a deep purple and I became immediately terrified. One thing I'll pull out of Susan's um, experiences, I, I think a lot of us have like a moment kind of looking at the sky maybe or or in some direction where you kind of just go like oh man i've never seen that before and i don't know seeing the sky do something you've never seen before is like very disturbing you know yeah yeah apocalyptic yes um and you know there was that there was the day around the bay area where there were you know big fires in the in the east and we had that like you know that wild sky and you know you're trying to take your kids to school telling them they're like boy the sky looks really weird you're like yeah 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 no it's gonna be fine you know but you're like none of us knew what was going on yeah that that type of uh experience can be really dramatic you know i think of it sort of as you know the natural world kind of uh you know trying to wake us up a little bit and be like Mm -hmm. this is you know there's something extreme happening here yeah you know another listener writes um in 2020 my husband and I drove up to our house near Bass Lake when we received evacuation warning for the Creek Fire. Turning off 41 and going east felt like driving into hell, and every part of my body wanted to turn around. When we got there, it was thundering from the fire, creating its own weather pattern and raining ash. It was so terrifying just moving things out, knowing that the fire was likely coming to our direction. I had multiple friends lose homes in that fire. Growing up in the mountains, I was always afraid of wildfire, but experiencing that made it all so much more visceral. I, the, the experience of having to drive through or near a fire is a, is a part of this book. And for some reason, and this listener is kind of bringing this up for me, that is the terror for me. Like when I think about it, because the cars can back up, like it's almost like traffic made hellish you know you we already talk about hellish traffic but that is like this idea that everybody needs to get out so nobody can get out there's something like just powerfully terrifying about that yeah i mean these are forces that are so much larger than us you know i think about it kind of like i I, i've always had a tremendous amount of respect for wildfire i think i mean i remember the first time i saw a burn scar i was taking a bus up uh, into Desolation Wilderness to go to camp as a kid. And and I remember seeing the burn and it, and it just being so dramatic, the scale of it. And it was one of those moments where, you know, I think part of it was that I realized like, oh, adults can't control everything. You know, there are things that are just so vast, so big, so mm-hmm. powerful, um, you, you know, and, and I think kind of in a way, uh, you know, you would think about the ocean, the power and force of the ocean. And mm-hmm. I think that moment where you're driving through and it's just, there's nothing you can do. There, this this fire is coming, and and the force and scale of it is uh, very extreme. There's also something about the fact that people just have all their like iPhone videos, so it's all like POV. You're driving, you know. There's a fire all around you. It just is terrifying. Yeah. Um, another listener writes, you know, as we saw recently in Lahaina and Canada, wildfire is not just a California problem. Climate change is making this a problem all over. Uh, the world. 
Another um, listener writes in to say, my wife and I purchased some land to develop in rural Sebastopol near Grayton, which has a single road in and out and hasn't burned in many years. As we got to know our new neighbors, they have a monthly general mobile radio service, GMRS radio check-in, to make sure that everybody has walkie-talkie connection and keeps the radios in their vehicles. Because we're in a precarious area, this has been useful. I wondered how the radio check-in started and learned that it was because our neighbor had lost his home in Sonoma County a couple of years prior. He is now vigilant and very active, and I can't wonder. I can't help but wonder if there is some type of PTSD which motivates his vigilance. Mm. Quite reasonable sounding to me, yeah. actually. You know, and those systems, those like little community scale systems that people have developed, you do wonder, like, what does that grow into? Like, what does that eventually become? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. When I was up in in the foothills recently, I met with these folks who uh, call themselves the Ant Hill Army. And they actually uh, gathered together to uh, defend their their community from the uh, Caldor fire as it was approaching because they knew, uh, you know, it, it was probably going to move through. And, you know, it was a variety of people from a lot of different backgrounds. You know, so it was ex-Marines side by side with, you know, people who lived on communes. And they worked for two days straight and they were able to actually redirect this fire. And, um, you know, they're still in touch today. And, and I think they have built in that kind of system where now, you know, they're much more tightly knit because of this experience that they went through together. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, hopefully those types of systems reinforce themselves and, you know, people become more resilient as a collective in that way. Yeah. Um, last listener uh, comment. I, I recently visited Napa, this listener writes, and saw the removal of small orchards and other diverse crops to be replaced by grapes. The strain on the water table, not to mention how this monocrop is bad for the environment and the impact it's having on the area and what it means for the future. As it turns out, it's taking a huge toll on the area. And the big wake-up call for the Bay Area was the week of orange air we lived through. I mean, that is one of the things, right? Ben is growing grapes in a different way. You know, he's got a, he's got a, um, it's it's part of his integrative practice kind of to, um, to try not to just do that kind of monocropping. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of natural winemakers are interested in farming in ways that are, you know, more regenerative, involve different kinds of plants and, uh, yeah, a more cohesive uh, ecosystem. Yeah. Um, last thing, do you, uh, you got any events coming up? You got stuff you're going to be doing around here? I do. I'm going to be at uh, Cleo's in Oakland tomorrow nice. night uh, for uh, the official release of the book. Oh, that's great. So, all right, Cleo's in Oakland. The book is Fire in the Canyon. It is really good. have to say, if you have someone in your life who has a ton of climate anxiety, I'm not sure I would have them read it. <laughs> but everybody else, yes. Uh, we're talking, we've are talking. we been talking with the novelist Daniel Gumbiner to explore his uh, life in a gold country town after a wildfire. He's an editor at The Believer, and his last book was very celebrated. It's called The Boat Builder. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Love it. Uh, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Key of Key and Peel is going to be on with Mina. Stay tuned. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country... We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.